Good morning. It is good to see you this morning. We are so glad you're here. So we have one of my favorite things as a church, and we haven't been able to do this in person for a while, and that is we get to see a brand newest member from up front. And so Ike and Alexis and Aidy are going to come to the front. This is Aidy and Alexis's first Sunday back. And proud brothers are already up at Children's Church. Hold her up Lion King style or something. Just <laughs> let everyone see her. What a cutie. We're so glad you all are here. And this is our brand newest member. So we're, we're thrilled that she's here this morning. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Okay, so from one kind of birth to another, this past Wednesday, I had the privilege of being here and getting to baptize Avery Carter, who's right over here. Just give us a wave, or you can stand up, whichever you prefer. So right over here with Sam and Heather Carter. She's graduating from Moralton this year, going off to U of A, and uh, it was a privilege to be a part of that. And if you, uh, if you get a chance... Uh, socially distance, but throw your love at the Peters this morning and let them know how glad you are to see them and go let Avery know how proud and happy we are as a church for her. These are some of the little things I know I have missed over the last year and uh, as we eke our way toward something like it was before, um, I celebrate those moments. So Avery, we love you and we're, we're proud of you. So if you watched this year's NCAA Men's Basketball Championship between Baylor and Gonzaga, if you watched early enough, then you may have seen that the national anthem was sung by a collection of frontline and essential workers. And I want to tell you the story of one of those individuals. To sing, you had to be nominated, and not just because of your ability to sing, although that's helpful, of course, right? But because of your willingness to serve. And so I want to tell you about one of those singers at the back, Dr. Eric Yancey. Dr. Yancey is a private practice pediatrician, and he also works at a children's hospital in Indianapolis. And that's where the game was held, and all of those frontline and essential workers were from Indiana somewhere. Uh, and when he graduated from medical school and finished his residency, he chose to work in downtown Indianapolis. And he did that for several reasons. He wanted to work with uh, underserved kids. Uh, for, for families that often didn't have insurance, were on Medicaid, for people who lived closer to downtown and may not have even had adequate transportation to make it to a doctor. And so he made it his mission to serve there, to stay there, even at times when he had opportunities to go out to other places and work. He wanted to stay there, and he's a beloved figure in his community. Now, I want to tell you a little bit of his backstory. So Dr. Yancey grew up in Baton Rouge in the 50s, segregated South 50s. 
And he remembers the injustice and discrimination of segregation. And it didn't go away just because he graduated college and he went into medical school and into residency. He was a trailblazer as the first black resident at Riley's Hospital neonatal ICU unit. But it wasn't always easy. So there was another doctor, the head of that unit, who recounted a time... When Yancey was asked to come and help with an emergency delivery across the campus. So he worked at one hospital and the university hospital was across the campus. And so to go and make it to that delivery, he had to start running across the campus. And the university police spotted him running across the campus, assumed he was up to no good. So they stopped him and they took him into their office interrogate him. And it was only when the hospital's chief doctor called them and told them, no, we really need him right now, that they, they let him go. And he recounted times when he would go into a, a patient's room and the cold looks that he received and the cold greetings from parents when they saw this was the doctor that was going to help their kid. And he said, no one can know the silent torture of having parents refuse to let you care for their children. But he determined throughout all of that, that was not going to impact his treatment. It wasn't going to impact his attitude. It wasn't going to impact his compassion. It wasn't going to impact his love. And it wasn't going to deter him from serving this under served part of the community. And it was the origin story behind why he became a doctor that really stood out to me and made me want to share that story this morning. He vividly remembered, he was eight or nine years old, and he was at the doctor's office with his father waiting to see a doctor again in segregated south in Baton Rouge. And so he was at uh, a doctor's office where the doctor was an African-American and was the only pediatrician anywhere in the area. And so many of the families, that was the place that they went, if not the only place they could go to get adequate treatment. And so the wait could be incredibly long in the waiting room. And he watched this day at, at eight or nine years old when a young mother came in with a sick baby and waited for hours and hours, but because there weren't enough people to help, at the end of the day, they had to turn her away. And this wasn't uncommon. People would wait for hours and hours, and at the end, there just wasn't enough time left in the day. And so this young mom with a young sick baby who had waited hours had to leave and come back another time and hope it would work out. And Yancey remembered sitting in that office, seeing that happen, and he started to cry. And so his father looked over at him and said, well, if you feel that way, okay. Then when you grow up, you can be a doctor and take care of the children. And at eight or nine years old, 
that's when it set in. That's when he decided. That's when he saw the need. He saw the opportunity. And he felt a sense of obligation. And he said, okay, then I will. And all throughout high school, his friends called him Doc because they already knew. Even in high school, that's what he was doing. That's how he was going to help. That's how he was going to make a difference. And that brings us to our text this morning. So if you have your Bible, open up to Esther, and we're going to be in chapter 4. And then this morning, I've asked Kendall and Rob Christian to come up. Now, Kendall is one of our graduating seniors. And graduating seniors, those of you who are here or those of you watching at home, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get you one more time up to read Scripture before you graduate and head out and go off to college because I want you to know that you are important to this church. We've had our Senior Sunday, but I want you to know one more time you're important to this church, but I also want you to know that you've got an important role. You've got gifts to play. You've got a witness to give wherever you go. Wherever you end up, the servants hasn't stopped. The service is just starting. God is gifting you. God is empowering you to be His witness in the world. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Esther 4. And Kendall and Rob, come on up and read for us. We're going to be in 412. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for these three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Thank you, guys. So if you aren't familiar with Esther, Esther is queen in Persia, probably around 478 B.C. or so. She became queen because she married the king, which is how those things work, right? King Xerxes. And Persia is the big dog on the block at this time, making Xerxes the most powerful, one of the most powerful people at, this, at that time. And Xerxes, if you read through Esther, you're going to see he makes some rules on a whim. And sometimes with disastrous consequences. And that happens several times in this book. And it seems to me as you read through Esther that Esther enjoys poking fun at some of the laws and the ways that the Persians approach their laws. And they certainly do this here. Now something that's helpful to know in case you're not familiar with the story or it's been a while is Esther becomes the queen because the first queen didn't bow down to kind of piggish whims of her husband, the king. 
and her husband doesn't like it. So Xerxes did what any reasonable husband or partner will do. He talked through reasonably and calmly his point of view, and he listened attentively to her point of view, and then said, let's, let's reason together. Let's, let's talk together. Let's come to a mutual conclusion, right? For those of you who've read the story, does that sound about right? No. No, he divorced her, he stripped her of all her titles, and he banished her. He's a real Prince Charming of a guy. And then he's like, it's time for a new wife, let's have a harem parade. And all of these women go through all of this setup to be paraded before the king. And lo and behold, Esther rises above the rest. But what we learn is that Esther is so much more than just the fairest in the land. Clearly, there's something about her that caught the eye of the king, but there is more. She is a Jew, a minority, an oppressed people. They are a powerless people. But what we start to see from Esther is that she is bold, and she is courageous, and she is faithful, and she's willing to stand up for and stand beside people who don't have a voice, who don't have someone to stand with them, even at great risk. Okay, there's a little more to the story, so if it's new, hang with me. So I'm going to introduce a couple of more characters. So there is an advisor to the king, a man named Haman from a people who are adversaries, enemies of the Jews. And there is another man, a Jew, named Mordecai, who happens to be related to Esther her cousin. And Haman, fragile ego Haman, gets it in his head that everyone needs to bow in recognition of him when he goes by. And if you know much about the Jews, you know they're not quick to bow to anyone but God. And Mordecai does not bow. And that walks all over Haman. And so fragile ego Haman convinces rash law-making king Xerxes to come up with a law that will ensnare the Jews and in essence lead to their genocide. Guarantee the death of the men and the women and the children. And it's a rule that's going to go throughout the land. And that's the setup to the passage that Kendall and Rob read. And so Esther is queen, but that's a little deceptive if you don't know the story because she doesn't really have a lot of power. She doesn't even have guaranteed access to the king anytime she wants it. And her cousin Mordecai knows this, but he urges her to do something, to take a risk, to talk to the itchy trigger finger king who we've seen when a wife doesn't please him, does not respond in a cool, calm, collected manner. And he urges her to go and talk on behalf 
of her people who were in danger. And Esther knows this. She knows approaching the king uninvited risk not just banishment like the queen before her experienced, but risked death. And so she asked for Mordecai to ask the people to fast on her behalf and pray for three days. And she says she's going to fast and pray for three days because this is a bold, brave decision that she has to make. But it is the setup, that suggestion that Mordecai throws out that has always resonated with readers. And it resonates with me especially right now in the times in which we live, in which he says, who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now, here's what I like about this idea that Mordecai throws out. Mordecai is not assuming that he can speak for God or that he can guarantee any particular outcome. And we could all use that kind of humility when we dare to speak for God, especially when we're speaking to other people. Mordecai doesn't know the outcome. He can't guarantee her safety. He knows none of the Jews are guaranteed safety. But he's convinced that it's the right thing to do. And here's what we know about the right thing to do. Doing the right thing doesn't mean it will always come out in a way that we think is right. That we think is fair that we think is just. And it's easy for us to forget because if you've sat through enough Sunday school lessons, then you know the end of this story. You know it goes well. You know the tables are actually turned on Haman, the one who plotted against Mordecai and the Jews. We know that, but they don't know that. She didn't know the outcome. All she knew is that it could go horribly wrong. All she knew is that there were risks, real risks, risks to her life. And yet what she also knew is that she had an opportunity that no one else had. And with that opportunity came an obligation. She knew there is always risk to standing up, to speaking out, to living out in love and service and compassion, especially toward people who may not be able to stand up and speak up on their own. Okay, so the last 14 months in many ways, have felt like living through a dark and difficult storm. Maybe you gathered that's an image that's been playing around in my mind as a massive storm with some light shining through is on the screen behind you right now. It's been 
a challenging time. And we're going to talk about this a little more as we go through this new series that we're starting this morning. But every one of us has weathered the storm, but we've weathered the storm in our own ways. And we've experienced the same storm and yet different challenges. And people are starting to come out and assess the damage. And some people still won't come out for a long time, not in the same way, because they're concerned about their health, and understandably, or they're concerned about the health of someone in their life. We've got someone in our household like that who's still vulnerable, and it's going to take time. And so some are starting to emerge Some won't emerge for a while, and others are thinking, starting to emerge, I never went into hiding in this thing. Some of you were like Lieutenant Dan in Forrest Gump, and you put yourself at the front of the ship, and you screamed at the storm the whole time, this thing is not taking me down. Every one of us has been through it, but we've been through it in our own way. Every one of us is coping, but we're coping in our own way. We've all suffered in one way or another, but it doesn't mean it's the same suffering. It doesn't mean it's the same intensity. It doesn't mean the impact is the same. So we're going to have to have grace and patience with one another as we try to emerge from this. We're going to have to have understanding for one another and understanding for the church that we're moving forward, but we don't know if everything that was before will be exactly the same again. We don't know. I've had so many conversations with other ministers, and every one of them are saying the same thing. I don't know who's coming back and who's not. I don't know who'll stick around and who won't. I don't know what it's going to look like exactly when it's all said and done. I don't know what wounds that you stagger out of this storm with. My guess is you have some. Some of those are emotional. Some of those are relational. I know some marriages that have taken a hit. I know finances that have taken a hit. I know businesses that have taken a hit, but it's different for all of us, and we're going to have to be patient with each other, and we're going to have to be gracious, and we're going to have to see with every new announcement of the CDC, some are going to be like, that should have happened six months ago, and some are like, we, we need to wait six more months, and then we're all across the board. Can we love each other? Can we be patient with one another? Can we be gracious with one another that we're serving something bigger than just our own whims and wishes? So you know those times when we see the best of our communities that often happens after a major storm blows through? And we had a lot of those in Arkansas, tornadoes and deep freezes that killed half of my plants in my yard. And and we see the hurricanes that blow through and all the things that affect people. And when the storm is over, we emerge and we, we start to not only assess what damage do I have, but we look around and say, what damage is around me? And how can I help? 
and the John Crabtrees of the world, they grab their chainsaw and they jump in their trucks and they head out to a neighborhood that wasn't their own. And the Mary Lou Morrows of the world grab a chainsaw. Mary Lou, we miss you. We're going to look forward to seeing you again soon. And Mary Lou always puts us younger people to shame because she's out there clearing branches and doing what she can do. And we're in one of those times when we emerge and we have to look at the damage and not just our own, but we look around and we see the damage of others around us. And when we see need, and when we see opportunity, then we also remember obligation. So Bruce talked about this a few minutes ago, and I want you to hear it again, and I've tried to say it a lot from up here. We know you're hurting in your own ways, and the leaders of this church have been praying for you, and we're doubling down, we're digging in this next month especially, and elders are going to be reaching out and calling you. If you don't receive a call, it may be we have the wrong number, or it may be we don't have your number, so reach out and let us know because they want to talk to you, and they want to listen to you, and we don't know what all your needs are, but we know there's a good chance you've got them. And we don't know all that the, the prayers that you have, but we know all of us can bring prayers to the table. Those can be pray, prayers of praise. Those can be needs or concerns for ourselves or other people in our lives. So please know, as we've tried to say for the last 14 months, you are not alone. We are here with you. We're walking beside you. We are praying for you. I want you to hear that. Whatever damage you're seeing as you assess the situation, you are not alone. But here's what I need you to also hear. We're ready to help you, but there is a very good chance that others in your, in your life are in need of help also. And I hope the words that Mordecai speaks over Esther will ring through your ears in the coming weeks and months. Who knows if God isn't calling you to step up at just such a time as this. And I hope the words that Dr. Eric Yancey's father spoke over his son, sitting in that waiting room, watching that young mother with her young baby get turned away after hours of waiting. I hope his words and I hope the sentiment behind those words will ring in your ears in the coming weeks and months. Well, if you see that way, if you feel that way, if you see that need, then do something about it. And I hope your mindset will be similar to Dr. Yancey. Okay, I will. Because who knows if God isn't calling you right now to help your neighbor? Who knows if God isn't calling you right now to step up and be there for a co-worker? Who knows if God isn't calling you right now 
to be there for a parent of, of a young kid who your kid is in Little League with or in ballet or dance with and who knows the ways that God isn't calling you and gifting you and equipping you and preparing you to serve the church right now because I can guarantee you we've got needs and they're only going to grow as we try to move back toward new levels of ministry and connection with one another. We're going to need life group leaders and life group hosts and life group participants because we need to do life together again. And it doesn't matter if you've not done it before. And it doesn't matter if you feel fully equipped because God will equip you and we can equip you. But we're going to need you. And we need people that have a passion to serve in the community, but we also need people who have a passion to bring others along. So from time to time, people will say, I wish we did more in the community. And if you say that to me, I'll say, what's your idea? And will you lead it? Will you help us with that? Will you help your life group? Will you help us with a ministry? I don't know if it will work or not, but we'll lay that fleece out. We'll see if God isn't opening a door for us. And if you've got the idea and if you've got the passion, will you have the follow-through? Will you help us be a serving church in a community of need? You're seeing it on Sunday mornings but we need more people helping with the praise team because some won't be able to come back for a while because of health concerns. Some may not come back. And we need more people. And you may say, I don't, I don't know. I haven't done that in a while. I think I can sing. Well, if you think you can sing, talk with Jeff. I know we need you. We'd love to have you. Parents, you know how desperate you were for the nursery to start up again and children's church to start up again. Church, this is for all of us. We can't do those ministries without volunteers. And we're going to have to be in the rotation more than we ever were before. Look around at the numbers. We're not anywhere near where we were before all of this started. And it's going to take a while to get there. And this is for everyone. Men and women. Women, I don't have to tell you that. You already know that. Men, this is for you. We need you. Take a turn in the nursery every once in a while. Take a turn in children's church if you haven't done that in a while. You don't have to have kids in that age range. We need you. I don't want to beg, but I'm not above it. Because you saw the desperation of those parents. And we got to step up. And parents will still need you to take a turn, but this, this has to be for some of you who aren't parents of young kids anymore but you know what it means to have that respite for 30 minutes on a Sunday. Help us out. We've got August coming, and we've said we want classes to start again. You can't do classes and kids' classes without volunteers. We need you. Have you heard that refrain? We need you. We need you. Who knows? I can't speak for God in what ways God is calling you, in what ways God has gifted you and equipped you. Here's what I do know. He has gifted you. Here's what I do know. He will equip you. 
Here's what I do know. He does have tasks of love and service for all of us. So who knows? I can't answer that call for you. But here's what I'm convinced. We've got a community in need. We've got neighbors in need. We've got a church in need. And maybe, just maybe, God is lifting you up for just such a time as this.